Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, please find in yours Revelation chapter 2, the second chapter in the Revelation. Last week we began a brand new book series through the book of the Revelation, and we did so with the single most important chapter out of the 22 that are in this book. Some of you are probably tired of me saying this, but let me say it again. The love of Christ, seen in the cross of Christ, Revelation 1 and 5, controls how we live for Christ, Revelation 1 and 3, by becoming ambassador slash priests for Christ, Revelation 1 and 6. Why would Jesus... Tell the seven churches what I just said. Here's why. Revelation 1 and 7. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And that means something more today than it did 2,000 years ago when it was written. And we learned last week that Jesus' coming is really near. Uh, to borrow from our Lord's lips, Matthew 24, right at the door. Can't get any closer. Now, I'm not a date setter. I don't believe anyone should listen to anyone who says, and Jesus is coming back on such and such date. I'm not a date setter. But here's what we learned last week. Jesus is going to return to earth, Zechariah 14, when all the Jewish people start returning to the land of Israel, Zechariah 10. In 1867, Mark Twain visited Israel. Does anyone recall what he said when he arrived? He could not see a human being. Today, you could see 9 million human beings. The Jerusalem Post, I gave you a couple of excerpts from some articles. Israelis have been hearing a lot of doomsday calls. Life here will be purportedly one giant unremitted traffic jam. Another scholar wrote a book entitled A Crowded Future, The Land is Full. And I read for us two passages. One, Zechariah 10 and 10, where it says there will be no room in Israel. I read another passage from Ezekiel where it says God is going to bring all the people back to the land. Prior to 1867, this would have been unheard of. In 1867, if Mark Twain would have cited these texts, nobody would have believed them. He couldn't even see one human being, let alone all the Jewish people coming back to the land. And then we ended our lesson last week by asking this question. Who needs to hear this? Who needs to hear what I just said? Jeremiah 31 and 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. God wants the Gentile nations to hear what we just did. And the seven churches 
have been entrusted with this responsibility. Why is it so important that the church talk about Jesus' coming? Well, here's why. In between Zechariah 10, when God is going to start bringing all the Jewish people back to the land, and Zechariah 14, when Jesus returns to earth, in between 10 and 14 is 12 and 13. And 12 and 13 is all about the Great Tribulation. Do you know what chapters 4 through 20 are all about in the Revelation? The Great Tribulation. Do you understand why we need to become ambassadors slash priests for Christ? We don't want people to ever have to go through the Great Tribulation. We want people to escape the Great Tribulation. And there's only one way to escape it. You have to be rapture ready. Remember that series, being rapture ready? If you're not rapture ready, you're going to go into the Great Tribulation. It's incumbent upon us to talk about the things that Jesus wants the church to talk about. And so he gives the church a bird's eye view of the future in the book of the Revelation so that we will talk about it. Why would anyone want to listen to the Revelation? Because the Jewish people are going back to the land. Zechariah 10. There's a reason why they're going back. God is bringing them back there. Why is he bringing them back there? Well, when he comes again, he's going to save them. He's going to save them. You know who he's going to save Israel from? The world. Look, there's only one people group on the planet that has been hated by everybody, and that's Israel. There's a lot of countries that are hated by other countries. There's a lot of ethnicities that hate other ethnicities. But for some reason, these people, above all other people, are the people that seem to be hated by everyone. And in Zechariah, we read, all the nations are going to come against Jerusalem. All the nations. Which brings us to chapters 2 and 3. See, there's a problem. And the problem is with the churches. There are seven churches that have been entrusted with this, hey church, the love of Christ seen in the cross of Christ controls how we live for Christ by becoming ambassadors slash priests for Christ. Get out there and tell people how to escape the great tribulation. But there's a problem. And the problem is with the churches. Five of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, have substantial problems. And listen, they're inward-related. And if there's one thing I've learned from pastoral ministry, when there's problems on the inside, the church is not very concerned about the outside. When you're constantly dealing with each other, it's really difficult to get preoccupied with others. And the enemy has the church exactly where he wants them. A problem-centered church. See, the church ought to be a 
problem solver church. We ought to be in the business of solving man's dilemma, solving man's problems. But how do you do that when you have so many of your own? In chapter 2, there are four independent churches. In chapter 3, there are three. We're going to look at four of them today. And they all have something in common with one another. Notice chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's stop there. Look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And one more, verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can you hear? Here's what you heard after I read those four verses. They all need to hear what the other church did. They all need to hear what the other church did. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. There are seven letters, but every church needs to hear what they each hear. And here's what they need to first hear. Now, I've only hand-picked. We were discussing before we began, uh, Rafal had said we can go weeks on end just in chapter 2, and that's true. Um, but I want to stick as much as we can to the objective of 22 chapters in 22 weeks. If for some reason, through your reading or through a lesson, you conclude, boy, I really wish he would have touched on this or touched on that, let me know that and we will. But the first thing we need to learn from our Lord is verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The Greek text literally reads this way, the love you had at first. The love you had at first. You might be thinking, what's the difference? And does it really matter? It does, because of where the emphasis is placed. Your first love points to something or someone. Lori is my first love. She's my only love, but she's my first love. The love you had at first is intended to point to the church in relation to what they used to be, what you used to be. Now, how do we know this? How do we know this distinction is what our Lord is making, the meaning of that word first? Do you see the word first in verse 4? It's not the word proton. The word proton speaks of priority. If the text says you left your first love, it would be talking about something or someone. Hence, Jesus ought to be our first love, right? He ought to be our priority. So it, it's not speaking of a proton love. Like, for example, Matthew 5 and 24. When you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, first be reconciled to your brother, proton. That's a priority verse. You're presenting your offering at the altar. What, what do we call it when we give God money? What, what's a W word that we would use? Is that worship? 
That's worship, right? You're worshiping God by giving to God money, an offering. But God, the Son, is saying, if you've got a problem with your brother, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and worship me. The point being is, you can't worship God if you're not right with your brother. So to God, being right with your brother is a priority. But that's not the word choice in Philippians, or in Revelation 2 and 4. He uses the word here, protos. It's about pastime love. Not priority love, pastime love. Let me give you an example. Philippians 1 and 5. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you see where Paul is going with that word first? From the first day, he's taking them back in time. The first day. And then he says, until now. Until now is the present. But the first day is the past. When Jesus says, you left your first love, he's taking them back. He's taking them back. To what they used to be. What did they used to be? Well, we have a clue in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deed you did at what? First. Same word. He's taking them back to how they used to be in the past. You guys have fallen from where you used to be. You used to be a church known for its deeds, but you don't do the deeds you did at first. As a church, you're not acting, you're not behaving the way you used to act and behave. How did they used to act? And what does it have to do with love? Listen to this, Ephesians 1.15. By the way, verse 1 is to the angel of the church in what? Ephesus. Ephesus. So we're talking about the Ephesian church. So if we're going to find anything at all out about the Ephesian church's beginnings, we might as well go to the Ephesian letter. Ephesians 1 and 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. Notice that in their beginnings they were known for loving each other and loving all the saints. They've fallen away from that. You are the saints in the Ephesian church. Your love for all the saints is your love for brother, your brothers and sisters down the block, the next town over. I don't think we realize how far Jesus wants us, wants any local church to stretch their love. See, we think the, that mission is accomplished when we learn to love each other. No, he wants us to have a universal love. He wants us to have a love for his body, the church, that extends even beyond us. That was what they used to be. That's not what they are. Now, to their credit, let's look at something about them, verses 2 and 3. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. This church was high on the doctrinal, weren't they, verses 2 and 3? They were low on the what? 
the emotional love. If a false teacher came in amongst them, this, false, this church would be able to know who was false and who wasn't because they knew their Bibles. <clears throat> William MacDonald writes, The fire of its affection had died down. The glowing enthusiasm of its early days had disappeared. The church could look back to better days when their bridal love for Christ flowed warm, full, and free. They were still sound in doctrine and active in service, but the true motive of all worship and service was missing. You see, you can be a church where the people in the church, they know their Bibles inside and out. They're doctrinally sound. That's the Ephesian church. But Jesus has a problem with them. They're learning, learning, and learning, but they're having less loving. Do you see the contradiction? Do you think this is possible, that a church can really be filled with academics? Somebody walks into the church and, and, and they're trying to teach things that are false and everybody in the church is able to determine that's a lie. That's not true. And we might get a little puffed up about ourselves, but we know our Bibles. We've been taught well. Jesus is saying, I have a problem with you. Verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, and repent and do. Do, do you see the meaning of repentance? It cannot be separated from doing. Real repentance brings about real change. So if you're a church, like the Ephesian church, that has lost its love for the saints, not only locally within your church, right? But you've also lost love for the body of Christ beyond your local church. Can I ask you a question? How are you ever going to muster up love for the lost if you can't even love the saved? How are you ever going to appreciate the love of Christ seen in the cross of Christ that controls how you live for Christ by becoming ambassadors slash priests for Christ if you can't even love the brethren? Which brings us to church number two, verse eight. Or verse nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Let's just stop there. This is one of the two of the seven churches that received no condemnation. They only received commendation. Have you ever heard preachers, and you've heard me say this, have you ever heard me say this, there's no perfect church? And the minute you walk in there, you're going to make it an imperfect church. Well, I've been wrong. I've been wrong when I say that, because there are two churches out of these seven that receive no, no condemnation from our Lord. They only receive commendation. From our Lord's perspective, they were perfect enough. Let's just leave it at that. They were perfect enough. There was nothing in particular that he can point to and say, I have this problem with you. I have this against you. And we're going to learn. He's got a lot of problems with a lot of these churches. At some of these churches, he's got multiple problems with in one church. But there are two 
where he doesn't spell out anything about them. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. If a church is poor, what do you think Jesus would want them to know? Would he want them to have a preacher that would say to them, God's going to bless you. God's going to give you earthly blessings. You know what Jesus does to this poor church? He doesn't, he doesn't in any way suggest to them that they're going to get any of the things that some of these other churches have. What he really does is he focuses on what really matters. How can you be poor and rich at the same time? There's only one way. Jesus must have a completely different definition of rich than, than perhaps we might. A church can't afford a building. A church can't afford a sound system. A, a church can't come up with money for this, and it can't come up with money for that. And you might, this, you, you might actually start thinking, boy, if we only had this, and if we only had that. If, if anybody were to ever think that way, they would need to listen to what Jesus wants to say to the church at Smyrna. Someone once said this. I think it's, it's always worth repeating. Listen to these words. You'll never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Let me say that again. You'll never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You see, if you have Jesus, you're rich. Let's assume that a church has nothing in the way of the things that other churches have. They're poor. But they have Jesus. And maybe they have not just Jesus in terms of salvation. But would you agree with me that once you're saved, there's a whole lot more to this thing called the Christian life than just salvation? What happens if you don't have a lot of what other churches have, but you have a whole lot of that other stuff? You're fortunate to go to a church where there is wonderful unity. Does that make you rich? Well, what happens if you go to a church and the people genuinely love one another? They're not fighting with each other. They're not arguing. They're not critical of one another. They genuinely love one another. But you don't have a lot of the, the world stuff. Are you rich? What happens, you know, and, and we in this room, we believe in this thing called the filling of the Holy Spirit, right? What happens if you're in a church that's got all the bells and the whistles, but you got a lot of folk in there, they ain't filled with the Holy Spirit, right? But, but again, you're in a poor church, and the people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, listen to what a man, some of my professors knew this man personally, his name is Ray Stedman. Does that name ring a bell to anyone? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Here's what Ray wrote. Listen to this poem. I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gain while he counted losses. I counted my worth by the things gained in store, but he sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. He wept as he counted the hours on my knees. I never knew till one day by a grave 
How vain are the things that we spend life to save. I did not yet know till a friend from above said, Richest is he who is rich in God's love. That's good, isn't it? Which brings us to the third church. Revelation 2 and 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Do you see those words, hold fast my name? Do you see that in verse 13? Hold fast my name? Mm -hmm. Philippians 2 and 16, listen, hold fast the word of life. Hold fast my name, hold fast the word of life is one and the same. And they both point to the same thing, witnessing for Christ. Did you see those words, my witness? Antipas, my witness? That's all about holding fast my name. When you talk about the name of Jesus to someone, you're witnessing. You know why? The book of Acts says, there's no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved but the name Jesus. See, anytime you, that name Jesus, I, you know, I get tears in my eyes anytime I hear God talked about, Jesus talked about. I, I watched a movie uh, yesterday, Killing Reagan, President Ronald Reagan. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie, but there's a scene after he gets shot, you know, two months into his presidency, he gets shot, he's going through surgery. And Nancy, his wife, is a little, well, not all there. And she's sitting on his lap and she's kissing his neck in the movie. Um, and she says to him, Ronnie, I hope you're not upset with me, but I've hired uh, um, a, uh, what's the word, a psychic. And um, Ronnie is trying to talk her out of this idea of, of a psychic. And, and um, um, she's begging him and pleading with him, I'm so afraid of what has happened to you. I don't want it to happen again. And, and maybe she could tell us of, of something like this is going to happen again. And please, l let me bring the psychic. And finally he gives in to her. And when he gives in to her, she sits on his lap. She's kissing his neck. And then President Reagan says, I know why I survived this gunshot wound. And she said, why? And she said, him with a cape, capital H. And, and they, made a, they made mention in the movie that a lot of the scenes were direct quotes from him. When, when he came up out of surgery and, and they took the, um, um, the breathing tube out of his mouth, he wanted to know who shot him. And um, and they they he he said was it a Russian, was it uh, was it was it was it a, somebody who hates the Republican Party and and they said no it was a it was a young man who's mentally ill. And President Reagan said we need to pray for him. Those things warm my heart when people want to talk about him. And. Um, so when you want to talk about the name of Jesus, I, I love that. Philippians 2 says, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. 
So you see this, this holding fast my name and holding fast the word of life is about talking about Jesus. The church at Pergamum was a witness to the world. So much so that one of their own, a man by the name of Antipas, was killed for Christ. But they had a problem. Can a church have so much love for the lost that they would even die in declaring the name and Jesus would have a problem with them? Well, here's what we're going to learn. This church is the polar opposite of the Ephesian church. They do love the lost. You know, the Ephesian church was high on the doctrinal, low on the emotional. This church, they're high on the emotional, they're low on the doctrinal. See, it's not an either-or with Jesus. It's a both-and. He's looking for both. Look at the beginning of verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Not one thing. A few things. Could you have a few things? Could you imagine having some pastor coming in and um, Bob Maestri lost his life witnessing for Christ? You know? And I come to the pulpit and I say, I, I got a few problems with you people. He, you, you might start thinking, does this guy even know what we've been through? Does he know that we lost one of our, our, our beloved brethren for witnessing for Christ? Doesn't this new pastor realize that, that we love the lost? You got problems with us? Well, let's find out what the problems are. But before I share what these things are that he has problems with, let me ask you a rhetorical question. Is it better to be an open-minded church or a narrow-minded church? Don't answer. It's rhetorical. Is it better to be open-minded or narrow-minded? What would the politically correct answer be? To be open-minded. Because if you're open-minded, you're accepting, you're tolerant, you're unbiased, and you're understanding. If you're narrow-minded, I chose words like this. If you're a narrow-minded person, you're pig-headed. You're bigoted. You're opinionated. You're unbending. And you're intolerant. So is it good for... Churches to be open-minded or narrow-minded? Can I prove to every one of you in this room that you're all narrow-minded? I'm going to prove it. How many, how many here have money in a bank? Anyone here have money in a bank, checking account, savings account? Now, how many want, want their banker, when it comes to their money, to say 2 plus 2 is 3? Would anybody like a banker that says two plus two is three? No, Jason. It's probably you don't have any money. That's why you say that. Trust me. If the minute it's your money, yeah. Well, that that's that wouldn't be Christian of you to say that. You you want two plus two to equal four when it comes to your money, don't you? Now let me ask you a question. Do you want it some of the time or all of the time? All of the time, you want 2 plus 2 to equal 4. That's true narrow-mindedness. Mm -hmm. In other words, there is a truth. There is a truth. It's an irrefutable truth. 2 plus 2 is 4. 
we want that to be what math says it ought to be all the time. That's narrow-mindedness. This church was an open-minded church. Let me show you what they were open-minded about. Allow me to finish reading Revelation 2, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you have also some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What, what word appears three times in those verses? Teaching. Well, you're, maybe the, the yeah. And, and if you remember, I've been pointing out to us, the church is not only to be doctrinal, but it's to be emotional. I don't know how people can love without the heart. I mean, if you're going to be a person who truly loves, your heart's got to get involved. There, there's got to be a level of emotion. But there's also the doctrinal. See, there are many big churches all in the name of saving souls that compromise truth. In other words, they place such a premium on evangelism at the expense of doctrine. That's this church. Let, let's talk about the doctrine of Balaam. It taught eating things sacrificed to idols. Who is offended in verse 14 and 15 concerning this eating meat offered to idols? The sons of Israel. So the Jewish people would be offended by these people in this church following this teaching, that it's okay to eat things sacrificed to idols. When, when, they, when the church met, here's what they said in Acts 15, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. And that was told to a Gentile church, the church at Antioch. This church that we're looking at right here, primarily a Gentile church. Let's look at the doctrine of Balaam. It's not just uh, the doctrine of Balaam was causing the Jewish people to stumble when it came to things being offered to idols, but the doctrine of Balaam, according to Numbers 22, taught about men in ministry for money. Do you think there are men in ministry for money? about the word Nicolaitans. It comes from two words. Nicolaitans comes from the word Nico, which means conqueror, and Laos, the people. Conquerors of the people. Do, do you think there are men in ministry that lorded over the people? Do you remember what Peter wrote to the elders in 1 Peter 5? Do not lord it over the sheep. Do you think there are men in ministry that, that are dictatorial? Do you remember a guy by the name of Diotrephes? When John wrote about Diotrephes, he's got to be the first amongst, amongst them. It's his way or the highway. Have you ever met men in ministry like that? It's their way or the highway. They're, they're dictatorial people. 
And they actually make you feel guilty if you were to dare use your brain on this subject. That's like the Nicolaitans. This church, listen to what G. Campbell Morgan said. While not committing itself to heresy, the church at Pergamum had become guilty of broad churchism, attempting to find room within her pale for all sorts and conditions of men and faiths. Jesus has a problem with churches like that. He's not only looking for the church that is high on the doctrinal, but high on the emotional. It's not good enough to be like the Ephesians, high on the doctrinal, low on the emotional. It's not good enough to be like this church at Pergamum, high on the emotional, low on the doctrinal. He's looking for his church to be both. Which brings us to the fourth church, verse 19. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Oh, wait, I'm in, I'm in the wrong chapter, I'm sorry. Verse, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Do you think Jesus likes this word protos? First? I mean, this is the third time he's always going back. He's got four churches... And three times, and by the way, every letter is meant for how many churches to hear? All of them, right? What is said to one is meant for all. And, And Jesus is constantly bringing these seven churches back in time to their past. In this church, unlike the Ephesian church, they started out wonderfully and ended up bad. This church probably didn't start out so good. But they're better now. They're doing better than they were at first. So what do we, what does Living Word Bible Church need to hear from these four churches? Here's four quick points. Number one, don't ever rest on your laurels. Never praise your past. Always examine your present, asking the question, how am I doing now compared to my past? The Ephesian church. Number two, When your church is poor in earthly things, just make sure you're not poor in understanding what matters most. The second church. We have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have love. And you will discover the churches that are really poor are the ones that have less of what really matters most. And the churches that are really rich are those that have a whole lot of what matters most. The church at Smyrna. Number three. Never, ever, ever, for the sake of growing in numbers, compromise truth. The church at Pergamum. And finally, number four, make sure your present is greater than your past. The church at Thyatira. That's our lesson.